I'm Matt Dixon, and welcome to the Purple Patch Podcast. The mission of Purple Patch is to empower and educate every human being to reach their athletic potential. Through the lens of athletic potential, you reach your human potential. The purpose of this podcast is to help time-starved people everywhere integrate sport into life. And welcome to the Purple Patch Podcast. This is, as ever, your host, Matt Dixon. And this week, well, it's a biggie, folks. You see, the premise of this podcast is all about performance, helping you enhance your journey of performance to become the best that you can be in sport and life. And the reason that we do this show is it fits squarely under the mission of Purple Patch to educate and empower all human beings to reach their athletic potential. And that's through the lens that from athletic potential, you reach human potential. Why do I remind you of this? Because today we have a very special guest, Alex Hutchinson. Alex is a leading resource on everything cutting edge in the world of performance. And you may well not be familiar with Alex's work via his regular contributions to Outside Magazine, entitled Sweat Science, or his big hitting book on elasticity of the mind when it comes to performance titled Endure. Now, to expand a little on who this guy Alex is, let me provide a little more context. He is, of course, as mentioned, a journalist. He leads Sweat Science, the columnist at Outside Magazine. He is a New York Times bestseller, Endure Mind, Body, and the Curious Elastic Limits of Human Performance. And before his world of journalism, he was a runner. Canadian national teams in cross-country, track, road, mountain running, And as he says, eh, probably more of a national level runner, but I just think he's been a little humble there. And behind it all, the reason, or at least one of the reasons that he's really into this research thing, he carries a PhD in physics from Cambridge University, as well as a postdoc in quantum computing. So, yep, he's one of those. He lives in Toronto, but... He's got pretty international experience living in the US, the United Kingdom, and Australia, all of which have, as he reports, very different running cultures. And I tell you, I couldn't be more excited to have him on the show. We've known each other for a long time, and we have long spoken about, well, just how much fun it would be to have a chat about performance and record the thing. And now it's here. We've finally managed to circle on the timing, and I spent a little time stewing how am I going to maximize this opportunity? There's just so much to talk about. And so, well, I decided to talk about everything. Yep, I am that greedy. But what has come out is a really fun, novel, far-reaching conversation about all things performance, because we did something that I titled Speed Dating, a quick hit series of discussions around all of the topics of performance. And of course, me being a little selfish as I am, what I did is I framed the topics under the purple patch pillars of performance, training, nutrition, strength, and recovery. And then we jumped off the back to talk a little bit about mindset and research and some other components. And what has come out of this is an incredibly meaty, fun, and highly informative discussion. I mean, If you want to know about the latest in diets, the mind, the mistakes of training approaches, mature athletes, whether ice baths are critical or fads, power meters for running, HRV, fact or fiction, and much, much more, Alex is the man. And on this show, he reveals all. 
Now, it's such a beefy conversation that we've broken the conversation into two parts. And so today we present part one. Next week, we're going to continue the discussion and finish up the pillars that we didn't get to in today's show. Now, before we dive into this chat, I just have to tell you a little squaddy update. And for the squaddy update, there is really only one place to go. And that's to stay with Alex Hutchinson, because I'm really confident you're going to love today's show. But I also think that you might be left with just a little eagerness for more. And guess what? You can get more. You see, members of the Performance Academy and, of course, Purple Patch Athletes are going to have a chance to spend time with Alex in a really special live Q&A session. We're going to do this in early February. And so, yes, today you can scribble notes. You can come up with all of your extra questions that you have. But then you can come and attend live and ask Alex anything you wish in the world of performance. Anything. And guess what? I almost guarantee you, he's going to have an opinion and he's going to provide great insight. Alex has graciously agreed to host an intimate video roundtable, but I've got to point out it's only going to be available to members of the Performance Academy and Purple Patch Athletes. And so, yep, just a little tidbit of one of the many benefits of being part of our inner circle. Now, you can join Purple Patch for coaching or you can also get behind the velvet rope via just joining Performance Academy. You get backstage, lots of opportunities like this. It's all at purplepatchfitness.com. Or of course, if you'd rather have a direct communication with us, just reach out to us at info at purplepatchfitness.com and we will answer all of your questions or give you the right information. And while we're at it, a little reminder. We have just completed our season-long video-enabled strength and self-care program, and it's specifically designed for all endurance athletes, triathletes, runners, cyclists, fitness enthusiasts. And we understand, look, you might already be coached and have a great coaching relationship and we wouldn't want to disrupt that. Or you might be self-coached. But this tailored program can be easily implemented into your current program. And there's something for you to do every day. A couple of main strength sessions a week, supporting core and stability, video-based self-care and tissue health sessions. And I want to point out, you do not need to be a Purple Patch athlete to benefit from our strength program. And so it's a really simple plug to your current training. So if you're interested in learning more about a strength program, you can just plug it straight in. Just reach out to us direct, info at purplepatchfitness.com. Let us know that you're interested in the strength program and you can supercharge all of the hard endurance training that you're doing. All right, so it's a big show. We've given Barry the week off. He's gone to get his vaccine, sort out a little bit of homeschooling for his setup and all of that good stuff. And so today we are going right into the meat and potatoes. And so, ladies and gentlemen, it is... Alex Hutchinson. Part one today, training and nutrition. Let's do it. It is the meat and potatoes. Away you go. All right, folks, it is the meat and potatoes and today, well, this one has been coming for a long, long time. Alex, welcome to the show. Thanks, Matt. It's, it's great to be here. 
We, uh, we originally were going to have a discussion in the meet of 2020, I think, and uh, we, we bypassed it for logistical and crazy reasons, but it seems like a, a wonderful time to, to have this conversation now. So I really appreciate you coming onto the show. Uh, it's great to have a chance to chat. And yeah, let's, maybe we'll have more bandwidth to have an interesting discussion uh, in 2021 rather than we might have had in the middle of 2020. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, we, you know, when, when uh, you agreed to come on the show, we took a step back and I thought, how do we, how do we frame this discussion? And we came out of something that was uh, a little bit novel, I think, and, and quite fun. And what I have labeled just to make you feel mildly uncomfortable, speed dating. And so we're going to go through a fast-paced tour of, of everything related to endurance and performance. And so hopefully you and I, not lacking words, are going to spend three, four, five minutes on each subject, dive in, and then move to the next one. And uh, You're wildly optimistic about our ability to be concise, but we'll, we'll, it's good to have goals to shoot for. It's, it's a challenge. It's a big, hairy goal of mine that, we can, that I could become more precise as we go through. Now, what I have done, slightly uh, selfishly, I might add, is that the topics today, I frame them all around the purple patch pillars of performance. And so I want to spend just one minute for listeners at home outlining what that is. Most people will really understand, but um, but I, I thought it would be really useful. So the four pillars of performance are endurance training, nutrition, strength and conditioning, and recovery. And the reason that we have this isn't some quirk or gimmick or anything like that. It's really an educational tool because whether we're coaching someone that's pursuing world-class performance or just simply feeling more healthy, better energy, better version of themselves in their daily lives, a simple fact that I've come to realize is that when we get an appropriate endurance training program that is supported with integrated strength and conditioning and a backbone of really in my mind, simple habits of nutrition that we'll dig in today and all supported with adequate recovery, including sleep, something happens that's really positive. They accelerate, they improve. And so I thought it would be fun to, to break that out. And I will add that that methodology, the four pillars, are all driven by something that's critical that we'll also get into today, mindset. And so that's almost the thing that buoys it and, uh, and sort of navigates it. So the first topic is training, and we all know we should move our bodies, obviously, for sports performance, but also for daily life and being a critical piece of the puzzle. And I think that for you, Alex, you've been obviously a, a rich history of, of being a high-level athlete, and, a, and I know that you've competed all over the world. So I first want to talk about the coach-athlete relationship, and assuming that you value coaching what I'd love your thoughts on are some of the key elements to what you believe are critical to a really successful coaching relationship and particularly being coached as so many of the folks and listeners at home tend to be coached remotely nowadays. Yeah, I mean, I've been lucky enough to have a, a number of great coaches that have left a big imprint on my life. I, you know, because I moved around a bunch in my in my 20s, I spent yeah at least three years in in Canada and the US and in Australia and, and the United Kingdom. Uh, great coaches everywhere. So anyway, to answer your question, I, I mean, I really think trust is the number one thing. Um, and I say that not really meaning it not as a cliche, but that I would, I, I think it's so much more powerful to do any workout 
believing that it's going to make a big difference to you than it is to do the right workout. And, and the, the one the mini story I'll tell is I, I had a, we had a great training group when I moved back to Toronto briefly in, I don't know, 2006, 2007, um, with a, with a coach that I had a very good relationship who had a very light touch, who gave us a lot of autonomy. Uh, and this was sort of the internet was taking over. People were discovering what other people were doing and, and runners in the group started to think, well, why aren't we doing this kind of workout? You know, Renato Canova says you should do this kind of specific workout at this point. And then, well, this other team with this other university, you know, a few hours away from us, I heard that they're doing this workout on Saturdays. And I think that, you know, and the group ended up splintering because everyone thought they needed something different. And to me, it's, it's really become more and more clear that it doesn't matter whether you're doing six by a thousand with two minutes rest or five by a thousand with three minutes rest or, you know, there, there are the, the workouts matter to some extent, obviously, mm-hmm. but having a relationship with a coach where you have a, a, a two-way relationship where you're discussing how you feel, uh, and, and the coach is seeing how you're responding to the workouts is far more important than the specific philosophy of, you know, periodization or, or, or anything like that, in, in my opinion. Yeah, it, it's interesting because coached athletes, the first default that they tend to fall to is the plan. And in fact, one of the flaws of, and I, and I find this particularly in remote relationships, is that they think it starts and stops with the plan. And, and I guess behavior of that, particularly if they're executing the session alone, they feel like success is, well, I followed the plan. And in fact, a really sort of successful, the role of a coach is, is to sort of almost be able to provide perspective, to facilitate autonomy, I would say. Uh, but, but I tend to be, fall on that side of a line of coach, so I guess I would say that, to instill belief, to provide feedback. And that, that's really at the essence of what a relationship is that, that fosters performance. Would you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. And, the, and, you know, you're talking about feedback and responding. And I mean, there has to be a plan, right? Like mm-hmm. you need a plan, but the plan is just the framework that you're you're hanging things on. I, I, I had a great coach in high school. And when I went to university, the transition was very difficult for me because we were doing different workouts with a, with a different underlying philosophy. And I thought, how can I run well doing these workouts with long rest when I come from a, a plan that has short rest? And I later realized that, you know, I, that even my high school coach wasn't that inflexible. I was the one being inflexible and I relied on my high school coach. We had a, we had, we had a lot of communication in high school. You know, I would call and talk to him on the phone after each hard workout. And I, I'm someone who tends to follow a plan. And so when he would say, yeah, I think we're going to aim for eight to 10 by 600. I'd say, well, Ross, uh, if you say eight to 10 by 600, I'm going to do 10 by 600. So if you think I should do less at any point, you, you have to tell me. And he would be there and he would tell me if, you know, you look a little ragged today, Alex, like, I think eight's enough because, and and I'm sure I'm not alone in this, especially in people, you know, among the listenership here, there are lots of people who, if you tell me to do a range, I'm going to do the hardest part of the range because I don't want to think that I've quit. So the coach, it's different. What each athlete needs is different. Some people need to be pushed. Some people need to be held back, but it's having that external uh, voice or set of eyes, and then being able to be honest in both directions, I think is, is it's hard and it's, it's rare, but that's, that's really what you get out of coaching as opposed to a plan. That's exactly it. Super. Okay. So we're, we're in, in the pursuit of time, we're going to hold ourselves to this. This is going to be challenging. I can already tell we've, we've set ourselves up for failure. We are going to pivot and go to a subject that 
I think I would be burnt at the stake if I, if I didn't ask you a question around heart rate variability. It's a hot topic over the last several years to a decade now. So the question is, what are your thoughts or around the value for managing recovery status, adaptation, training load with heart rate variability? And perhaps just start with 30 seconds to a minute outlining what heart rate variability is for listeners. Yeah. So uh, the, the very first thing I have to say is that I have never measured my heart rate variability. So all of my opinions are hypothetical and, and that's a, 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 pl a plus and a minus. It's, it's, it's a minus because I, I've never used it, but it's a plus because I don't have, I'm not in invested in it. Mm -hmm. I, and that's this, true with a lot of things I write about. I, I don't, I don't want to have an opinion. I just want to know what the research says. So heart rate variability essentially is you know, your heart is beating, let's say your heart is beating 60 times a minute. That means every one second your heart beats. Um, but it's not one second, 1.00 1 seconds. Sometimes it's 0.99, sometimes it's 1.01 seconds. And so it's varying from beat to beat exactly what the interval is. And that level of variability is a reflection of what's going on in your autonomic nervous system. Essentially, it's a reflection of the balance between your, your fight and flight response mm -hmm. and your rest and digest response. And so... Uh, if you are not recovering properly, if you're kind of stuck in fight or flight mode, kind of stressed out, then you're actually going to have lower heart rate variability because the, 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 there are various ways, very, I, I, I'm not qualified to explain the physiology, but basically, um, the, the more regular your heartbeat is, the more that indicates you're in that fight or flight mode and maybe not fully recovered and not fully relaxed. So the idea is every morning you wake up uh, under exactly identical circumstances, you test your heart rate variability and it give, and over time you can look at the trends and say, boy, I've been higher than usual the last couple of mornings. I must be recovering well and responding to training or I'm lower than usual. Maybe today's not a good today for that 150K run that I was planning or whatever. Um, so that's the theory. Uh, and the theory is good. I think this is, this is not like, uh, you know, just a bunch of mumbo jumbo that th there's good theoretical underpinnings and there's good data suggesting that this is real. The question is, is it good enough to make a decision, uh, on the basis of it? Is it because there are, there are random fluctuations. There are any number of things can affect, affect your heart rate variability. And so the challenge, the fundamental challenge in the research has been, okay, we know that in general terms, if you take a hundred people and the, the, you know, measure them over long periods of time, the trend is going to be that when they're more recovered, their heart rate variability is higher and, and, and vice versa. But on Tuesday morning for you personally, can you make a judgment based on whatever number the machine spits out? And the answer to that for me, the, the where I would sit on this is I wouldn't make any decisions on the basis of that, but I would, if you've taken a, a, a sufficient baseline of data to know where your usual values are, then by all means, I would add that to the, your decision matrix along with things like, how do I feel today? Uh, how much mileage or how much, how intensive my workout's been, what else is going on in my life? I don't know for sure that adding heart rate variability improves the accuracy of your decision-making because that's a really hard thing to test, but it's plausible enough to me that I, I, I would, when, if people ask, I would say, sure, by all means, if that's the kind of feedback you like, if you like having numbers more than just assessing how you feel, then that's a, that's a pretty good number to consider. Yeah. I, I have a saying shackled by data. And, uh, and I guess in some ways what you're saying is, and I absolutely agree that there's real sort of credence to the, 
the, the research and the, and the premise behind it. But I, I struggle to, I'm wondering if there's anything around recovery scores and heart rate variability and, and, and any sort of metric based that doesn't require or isn't optimized with the absolute need for the athlete or person to pause and self-reflect. And so I often present it, I think you present it really well, put it into your matrix. I always say it's a conversation starter. It's an objective feedback that requires obviously consistently over time. But yeah, go ahead. So what I think, so I don't think to answer your question, I I don't think there's any way you can get away. You can't outsource this to a machine. You have to be asking yourself how you feel because at least at this point in our evolution. So it can never replace that. Now, I remember a conversation I had with Carl Foster, an exercise physiologist, I don't know, 10 years ago about the concept of perceived effort just in the context of, of, uh, prescribing exercise. And he's, and he's done a lot of research on, on perceived effort. He said, it's really, really accurate. It's really, really reliable. It works really, really well for all except a small subset of people. And I remember him saying, he was like, you know, it's usually doctors and lawyers. They'll be on the treadmill and I'll be asking them, rate your effort. And they'll be like, it's six out of 10. Okay. Six and a half out of 10. Seven out of 10, which is not very hard. And then all of a sudden they're flying off the back of the treadmill because they're unable, they're so out of touch with their ability to admit that they're pushing hard or, or, Mm. you know, so I, I I think that being really in touch, being really self-reflective and, and feel knowing how you feel is the gold standard. Something like heart rate variability is some, is a, is, is a crutch that can help some, probably some people more than others. And we have to acknowledge that just because we may think that, uh, you know, uh, subjective effort is the gold standard. Not everyone's good at it. It takes practice. And so maybe there's, there's a role for helping, but you can never replace the responsibility to ask yourself how you're feeling and to answer that question, honestly. It, it is. And I absolutely agree. And I, I certainly don't dismiss by any stretch of the imagination, the u- utilization of, of data globally, including heart rate variability. I, I, I can't help but go down this tangent as a coach as an athlete in this sport, of the sports that I've seen, I think swimmers, uh, and this is this is a generalization. I realize swimmers are incredibly good generally with uh, perceived effort, and here's why. Here's here's why. At, at least this is my theory to why. There's no peer-reviewed research in this. We tend to, me being an old swimmer, it's been many, many years now, but me being, we tend to swim in a controlled environment, so let's make it a 25-meter pool, with no in-flight sort of feedback. We're not looking at heart rate, we're not looking at pace, we're not looking at power. But at the end of every interval, let's say I'm doing 10 by 100, I'm getting immediate feedback for that. Oh, that 100 took me a minute and 10 seconds or whatever it might be. And when you do that for way too many hours a day, because swimmers generally wait grossly overtrain relative to the demands of their event, you're sort of constantly getting this dose and response, this feedback, but it's only at the end of it. So you can't help but have this really innate uh, sense of pacing. Uh, rowers tend to be pretty good. Uh, runners, not too bad. But yeah, that, that inner animal is what I talk about. It is always critical. And I think that's, you know, you can take that to the next extension and say, well, that that is something that may change as as we become more dependent on in-flight data, as you say, the more the more data you have accessible, the less you have to develop that skill because it is a skill. 
And I, I remember reading it. There's a, an article in a coaching journal that I read again, uh, maybe a decade ago, talking about uh, bandwidth of feedback and suggesting in the context of running, hey, you know what? You should have inter- have your runners do intervals without their watch on sometimes and you know give them the split every 200 meters then give them the split every 400 meters then give them the split every 800 meters and you know one of the the most traumatic experiences of my life was when i was training with uh, matt centerwitz seniors group in washington dc if he caught you know it was a very good group and i didn't want to screw up the splits so if i was leading a, net, a rep i would check at 100 meters at 200 at 300 to make sure when i came through 400 that i was not off and didn't get yelled at he would see me do that and he would he would force me to pull off my watch in the middle of an interval. We'd be doing mile reps and I'd be peeling off my watch and throwing it into the infield a lap and a half in. And it, there is no feeling more naked than leading an interval, trying to nail the splits and suddenly you don't have your crutch. And it's like, I know that, that even at the time I was like, this is good for me. I know this <laughs> is good for me. This is, this is, this is attacking the, the, my neuroses, but it's hard. And we, we love to have more data, but it's not always good to have it I, I, you know, it's, it's good to learn to do without it, I guess I would say. <laughs> this is good for me, but I'm not enjoying it. <laughs> it's cod liver oil, you know, it's, it, you'll grow up big and strong. Cod liver oil. There it is. So let, let's, let's uh, jump. And the next one is again, one that I absolutely can't go through training without asking you. And it's a hot topic actually really recently with some recent research that came out power meters for running. So question time to adopt this technology or similar to our last conversation that we just had, a route to paralysis of analysis. And I'm really interested around this because recently there was a, a research coming out about the how they actually are measuring power through these running power meters. So I, I think I think we need to separate this into a couple of different questions. One is, is it possible to have a meaningful measure of running power and what does that mean? And then two is, if it is, should we use it? And so I think the second question to, to address it first, let's say that running power is it, it is reliable and gives you good data. Then it's it's just like cycling. You can decide whether to use it. You can decide whether or not to use it. There are advantages or disadvantages. Uh, you, you can easily become a slave to the data. But the nice thing about power, as cyclists know, is it, you know, unlike heart rate, there's no, it, it responds immediately. You know, you start cranking the pedals harder, the power goes up. There's no drift over time where it's like, you know, as you get dehydrated, the power, the power level and the effort de- decouple, you've got a nice real time, uh, assessment of how hard you're working. It, if, and, and cyclists certainly find that useful, um, whether it's as useful as they think is a, is a separate question. Now for running, it's way, way more complicated because running is not cycling. Running is a much more complicated motion. And the argument that's been bubbling for a while and that Stride, which makes power meters, put out a, a white paper recently that makes uh, that that sort of reframes what they say they're measuring. And I think it's important to understand power. When you measure power on a bike, you're measuring basically how hard you're grinding the pedals. Mm-hmm. And you can have an analogy in running, which is how hard are you slapping your feet into the ground? And the reason it's been controversial is that that number is meaningless. It doesn't tell you anything about how, how hard you're working because running the power depends in running depends on all sorts of factors, including the the slope you're on and and how much energy you're getting back from your tendons, which stretch and 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 snap back like strings. So what Stride has finally said is, look, we're not measuring mechanical power, which is how hard you slap your feet into the ground. We're basically measuring metabolic power, which is 
the equivalent of VO2. It's what you measure with a VO2 max machine. Uh, it's, it's basically measuring how quickly you're burning energy. And that is ultimately what we're interested in. So to see if I can sum this up in five seconds, um, I think running power meters, if we think of them as real time, like VO2 or energy uh, estimators, is a pretty neat concept. And I think the technology is maturing enough that they can be useful. Whether that means we should all start using them is another question. And I will say, again, I don't use one. I don't have anything like it. I mean, I don't even have a GPS watch. I, this is stuff is not, uh, I, I, I think there can be uses for them, but it's not something that I feel compelled to use. But if you want to have that kind of data, I, there's an argument that running power is more useful than pace or than heart rate. Mm. That's super. Yeah, I, I have not adopted... Uh, power meters for running yet globally i have athletes that utilize them but as a, as a coach i really haven't adopted and uh but but i keep what about cycling do you use them with, with cycling yeah with cycling? yeah we we do uh although with uh with my higher end athletes i tend to uh we utilize them as rain uh, in racing and in training as uh i would call it feed forward rather than feedback so we're not governed we're never saying okay, Sam Appleton, you are going to ride at this power. It's, it's information and it's often a tool that we can utilize that can be useful. For example, if he's in a, and I'll just use Sam, one of our professional athletes, imagine if he's riding and he sees that he's working hard, but his power is quite low on a flat course. He will look around, "Ah, oh, it's a tailwind. Okay. I'm going faster. My speed is high. My power is low. I expect that. So it's a constant sort of live, extra piece of information that's useful. But I will have Sam also go and ride his gravel bike or ride his road bike without power. And so we we tend to sort of, it isn't the predominant number that we sort of lead with is I want you to ride at this period, which is different than many coaches, I would say. And I would, I would gather that you, there is no machine that gives you that predominant number that you're having him ride. You're, you're not having him ride to a heart rate value or anything like that either. So. No, no. Again, heart rate using as, uh, as information and feedback, uh, for, yeah. for some athletes, but you know, we do a lot of work descriptive and in, and in fact, the higher end, the athlete, the more descriptive the training becomes quite often. So, well, it can be useful to look at an effort and, you know, sometimes you finish a workout and you feel like that didn't feel all that great. Well, let's find out. Mm-hmm. Did you put out the power, you know, especially if it's on an unfamiliar course, what, you know, what was different? Were you trying less hard or were you feeling worse? Well, the power can give you uh, some, some diagnosis of, of, of that, some partial diagnosis. And so I would say that the same, the same conversation is, pr- we're getting to the point where the same conversation can be had in running. I, I don't know that we're there yet, and I haven't used power meters to be able to say, yes, I find that the you know the running power meter is very accurate. But from what I've heard from people, um, it's it's getting to that point where you can you could conceivably use it in the same way that you use it for cycling, not as the be all and end all, but as a, as another tool in your quiver for those athletes who who want to have those quivers in their in their. And arrows in their quiver. Yeah, what, what wonderful way to say, and, and I'm excited. And I think it's it's very interesting. So, so I want to I want to switch gears. I'm going to go away from from power meters and heart rate variability. I, I want to talk about aging, uh, maturing athletes. We we have a whole cast of characters in Purple Patch that we call the AARP anarchists, my friends that are on the maturing side and um, uh, and not uh, sort of starting to unwind instead seeking performance 
So I'd love your thoughts on the common things that you see many aging athletes getting wrong in training. So if, if, if the general question is what are most aging athletes get wrong, then I think the, my, my first answer is one that will not apply to your group, which is the, the big pro- biggest problem for most people is they're not training hard anymore. Yeah. <laughs> they're, they're, you know, like let's, let's be honest. It's, it's, um, you're in a small and, and, and great elite. If you're, if you are continuing to train hard, eat, you know, as, as, as age advances, as it does for all of us, um, and so then you're, you're, so you're, you've solved the biggest problem if you're still pushing yourself and still training hard. And that's, I think it's important to remember that that's, I mean, that's great. Now, in terms of optimizing it, you know, that obviously the cliche for, for older athletes is they're not, they're trying to maintain the same training density. They're trying to, uh, work, they're trying to follow the same training plan that they were in their twenties and they're just not able to string together consistent training. So you hear that, that. I, you know, I can still get into good shape, but it's just, you never know which me is going to show up on, on, on race day. Cause some days I'm just, sometimes I'm just, I just don't have it. And so I, you know, I, I, I definitely, I'm a 45 year old athlete and I, I definitely have not solved this problem, but I would say I, I want, I have definitely shifted from, I used to do two hard interval workouts in a tempo run a week. Now I will either, I often do just one interval workout and one tempo run a week. Um, if I do two workouts, it's, it's because, uh, it's for social reasons. Mm-hmm. It's because I want to go meet my friends. And so if I do wind up doing two workout, two interval workouts a week, because I want to go hang out with my friends, I'll make sure one of them, I'm just on cruise control. Um, so I, I just, you can get away with it for a week. Sometimes you can get away with it for two weeks, but sooner or later, if you're not recovering between workouts, it just, Experientially, I don't have any, you know, research that says this, but experientially and, and from friends, that seems like that's the biggest adjustment people have to make. I, I would wholeheartedly agree. And uh, and I think holding on to the old, this used to work 10 years ago or 15 years ago and applying it is, uh, is a key element. So wholeheartedly agree. All right, let, let's jump in, in pursuit of time because I, wa- I, I want to talk about cross-training as well, as my, or for lack of a better phrase, what I would call a multi-sport approach to training. And let me sort of preface this. We've had a lot of success with athletes who are either consistently battling the injury cycle, runners that can't string together consistently, whether it's poor training or whether it's just a sort of genetic, genetic predisposition to get injured frequently, uh, with integrating other disciplines, you want to call it that rather than other sports, into their training. So leveraging the addition of the bike, the additional elliptical trainer, et cetera, et cetera. So I'd love your feeling, your pulse, so far as research and things like that, with a diversification of training for athletes, strength, other sports, et cetera. Yeah, I think it's really, really dangerous. I've, I've seen it happen to some of my best friends who they're runners and they start biking and then they just end up biking, biking all the time and never come and run with me anymore. So it's very sad <laughs> to, to, to lose yet another runner to cycling. No, I, I mean, I, I'm trying to think whether there's any research. I don't, I, don't, I don't know that I've seen any research on it, but I think it's, it's undoubtedly a good idea. Um, I think... The, I think, you know, triathletes are starting a, a ahead of the game because not only are they, uh, you know, by definition, they're doing multiple sports, but they're also 
competent in all, all of those other sports. Mm-hmm. And so it, 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 uh, it makes it easier. So for me, the, the big trap is, uh, I'm, I'm so comfortable running. I enjoy running. I have all the equipment I need for running, which is none. And so I go biking sometimes with friends, but I don't have a good road bike. And I have a ton of fun when I do, but I'm just not into that in, in the routine in the same way that I am. And swimming, of course, you know, you have to have arranged the logistics of having a pool, which in, in the in the past year certainly has been even even harder than normal. So I I think it's a great idea. Um, I think it allows you. And, and I, let me get away from just the aerobic stuff, which is what I often think of as cross training, to, to the strength stuff, and to relate it back to your previous question about aging. I think that's maybe, maybe I could change my previous answer and say the biggest mistake older athletes don't make is, is do sufficient strength training to maintain their muscle mass. I, almost every really successful master's athlete that I've spoken to attributes a lot of their success to, um, really serious, you know, a couple times a week strength training to maintain muscle mass. And I'm a classic runner in that my BMI is, you know, like verging on single digits. And I think that's a real performance limiter for me. I I, I really struggle to keep muscle on. And if I wanted to race faster, I think that would be my number one thing that I would need to do differently, uh, is, is try and, uh, uh, do enough strength training to maintain muscle mass. Yeah, I, I agree. And I actually let you go on that a little bit because I know we've got a whole uh, category to get through in strength. But, uh, right. but I ab- ab- absolutely agree on um, on the role of strength training. And so we'll, we'll sort of hold that as it were, but I think it's absolutely yeah. critical. It becomes really critical for female athletes as they start to mature for a whole bunch of health reasons as well. But uh but even high high performance populations. Um, I, I the, the one thing I would add with multi sport as well is let, let's assume that someone is a focused runner looking for performance, but they're continually uh, sort of injured or uh, or not finding performance, managing fatigue, whatever it might be. We often philosophically utilize other sports or disciplines. But not to diversify and say, now you can become a really good cyclist, for example, but actually to use that training because there tends to be a a really nice cross-pollination of the work you do on the bike to actually help them become a better runner. And there's a couple of things, and I'm just going to put this as a seed for your contemplation over the coming months or years that maybe you'll you'll look at it. So we do a lot of high-torque, big-gear work on the bike. So that's low cadence, quite a lot of tension. And it tends to reported, and we see athletes really have a positive impact with when they go away on other sessions and they go and run. And I, I think there's something around the sort of very safe way of doing this almost bridge between the strength training that you're doing and hill-based running. And the other thing is the brain is not very good at talking at the, the, the back of the body, the posterior chain. And this really does seem to improve the, the dialogue between brain and muscle back there, hamstrings, glutes, et cetera, that reported, observed, when you when you go through, it really tends to have an impact, a positive impact. And so we actually use the other disciplines, not just as general fluff and fun, but actually like, can we use this to make you a better runner, as it were? And, uh, and I think it's an interesting place. I, I think it, it's different at the world-class level. You know, I wouldn't say to Des Linden, okay, let's go and really start doing a multi-sport approach. And I'm not suggesting that everyone should become a triathlete either, but I think that there's an interesting um, 
area of explanation around multi-sport for endurance athletes globally? Yeah, it's interesting to go beyond, I mean, beyond like, here's a way of getting aerobic training in without hurting yourself to here's a way of getting aerobic training in that will actually bring you better, make you better when you come back to running. Yeah. So, or, you know, yeah. so that's, and it, yeah, it sounds, it's, it sounds plausible to me. So what would be interesting? Well, the last one under this, this category, which is our major category, our biggest category that we talked about. I almost hesitate to ask the question because it comes with a label, which I, I as a coach, am not a big fan of hit training, high intensity interval training, H-I-I-T. And the reason that I, I'm not a big fan is because I, I see it splashed all over the pages and many training programs with, I think, many coaches and athletes not really understanding what, what it technically is. And so, so I'm going to ask the question anyway, what's the right approach for endurance athletes and for general athlete population. And, and I think just like heart rate variability, you need to diagnose what HIIT is. <laughs> yeah. Well, if I will reveal the correct single interval workout. If you send me $9.99 to my PO box, uh, if you buy now, I'll give you two interval workouts. No, <laughs> the, the, there is no magic interval workout, right? There's no, there's no one right answer. But I mean, look, uh, what we're talking about with high intensity intervals in broad terms is, um, you know, short spurts of really hard effort interspersed by short spurts of recovery or easy running or cycling or something or whatever the case may be. There's a whole textbook by uh, uh, Paul Lorson and Martin Buchheit which I can't remember the whole dichotomy, but there, you know, there's six types of interval training ranging from the sort of, you know, 10 seconds as hard as you can with a couple minutes recovery where you're, it's really a sort of neuromuscular workout to the, you know, five times a mile with a minute jog recovery where it's, it's, you know, a purely, a, a cardiovascular, not purely, but it's largely a cardiovascular workout. And there's all sorts of flavors in between and where you can be working on, speed, you know, sprinting versus working on uh, more or less threshold work and recovery and lactate clearance. It's a whole big thing. I guess the right workout depends on, I so first of all, I don't think there's a right workout, but the right range of workouts depends on what you're training for. If you, you know, if you're an 800 meter runner, if you're a, a miler, it's very, very different than if you're a marathoner. But there's actually a surprising amount of overlap. Um, if you're an endurance athlete, the sort of sweet spot tends to be three to five minute hard repetitions. Uh, this is not to say that six minutes is bad or two minutes is bad. The, the, the differences are subtle, but that's that. Often we're talking about that sort of range, three to five minutes hard. Um, personally, when I you know you asked about the general population, when I when I try to sort of encourage my parents to, to do some exercise because I do believe that intervals are really mm -hmm. a powerful, not that you should do intervals every day, but I, I, like I said, I do intervals once or twice a week, uh, along with a, a, a threshold workout, but something like 60 seconds on 60 seconds off would be my default bread and butter for someone who for general fitness just wants to do, you know, they're, they're out walking every day or jogging or whatever the case may be. Hey, why don't you try going hard for a minute? or for 30 seconds or something, you know, build into it and then taking a break. Um, either way, the, the magic of interval workouts is that you're able to push yourself much harder for much longer than you would if you just went out and sprinted as hard as you could. And athletes have known that for a century. Um, the general fitness world discovered it 
15 years ago. It's good that they discovered it. I don't know. That, that, that's my sort of uh, off the top of my head take on on what I would advise people. Yeah, it's great. The, the way that I talking to general population, friends, et cetera, parents, whatever it might be, the way I try to explain it, uh, which I think is, uh, is a very accessible way, is the body doesn't really like monotony. The body likes variance. And so leaning to variance. And the way that we deliver variance is this thing called intervals. And uh, it's like, ah. There you go. Okay, I get it. <laughs> yeah, and 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 you know the, the body sometimes likes to be in fifth gear. If you don't use fifth gear, you're not going to have fifth gear, and you're not going to be able to. No matter how patient you are, you're not going to work up to the point where you're doing fifth gear for half an hour. The only way to get to fifth gear for most people is to do it for very short bursts of time. But surprisingly, you can recover very very quickly, and you can do it again a minute later or two minutes later. Exactly. Well, a wonderful way to to book in that big category. So we're we're going to shelve that. And we're uh, we're good to go. Now we're going to go on to whew, the blizzard of bullshit, nutrition. <laughs> so this is a, uh, a subject that is both confusing for many people, contentious. We're going to slay the beast with uh, three to four minute chunks. And I guess my preface for this subject is that whether it's an athlete, whether it's a performance-driven person, nutrition is critical. But, uh, you know, it really can make or break a whole bunch of good work. But somehow it's sort of a subject that's really been drawn into a lot of wizardry, a lot of uh, complexity, confusion, contradictions. And, and it's obviously a relatively young science globally. And so let's, without being too lame, let's tuck in. And, uh, and I'm going to start at the only place that I can, diet trends. High fat, low carb, vegan, which I declared was going to be the word for 2020. There are different words that happen, but of course, veganism has, has really exploded. What in your mind are the, the winners and losers of, uh, of these diet trends that we learned through the last year? What do you see looking forward, some of the trends that really have good stickiness? Yeah, I mean... There's a big difference between what I what I think happened and will happen, and what I think should happen. <laughs> or, uh, I, 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 let me. I, I think it's important just to start with my own biases, and, and I, I eat what I would consider to be just a an omnivorous diet, a non restrictive diet, um, probably closest to Mediterranean. If you wanted to stick a, a label on it. I eat meat, but not a ton. I eat as much fruit and vegetables as I can. I eat carbohydrates. I eat, you know. So, I I have I, I'm I have found it very interesting to see some of the nutritional ideas on performance over the last decade. The idea of a low carb, high fat diet for endurance performance, for example, I found it fascinating. It's like, okay, yeah, you, your body adjusts to to burn fat more efficiently and more effectively, and Maybe you can access stores for longer. Maybe it will enhance performance. One of the things we learned in 2020, probably the the, the study that jumps out to me the most is Supernova 2, which was at the Australian Institute of Sport. Uh, they had done Supernova 1, which was the first really real study with elite athletes uh, trying various diets, including low-carb, high-fat, uh, ketogenic diet 
trying to see if that enhanced performance. They concluded it didn't. Everyone concluded that they were all, you know, in cahoots with the devil and and had done a very bad study. So they tried to uh, repeat the study, taking into account some of the the criticisms, and they came up with the same results. That basically, if you're if you're fueled entirely by fat, uh, just as a matter of chemistry and stoichiometry, you're, you're going to be a little bit less efficient. It's going to take you a little bit more oxygen to produce the same amount of energy, which is a bad thing if you're, if you're racing in an event that requires you to breathe hard. Um, so for me, that, that shifted me from a plate, you know, I, for me, it's never about, I'm a hundred percent sure that this diet is good and a hundred percent sure that that diet's bad. I have a range of a very broad range of certain certainties. I'm, I'm not, I tend to be not very definitive in my pronouncements, ketogenic diets, I would say that that shifted me sort of below the 50% margin of like, if you want a diet that will enhance your performance, I wouldn't necessarily as a as an athlete competing in an event that lasts, let's say four hours or less, I wouldn't recommend a ketogenic diet. Now you may have 27 other reasons that you want to go on that diet. And, and if you do, it's not going to, unlike what we maybe thought 10 years ago, it's not going to completely prevent you from, com, from finishing endurance events, mm-hmm. but it's not, it's not going to make you better. And it may make you marginally, marginally worse. Um, other than that, you know, like what did we learn about vegan diets? I don't think we learned anything and I don't think we're going to learn anything next year or the year after or the year after. Same with a lot of the other diet trends. These are extraordinarily, extraordinarily difficult things to study. And to me, there's very little evidence that there's strong differences in the outcomes on a population level, at least. Some people do seem to do well on particular diets, and if so, more power to them. It's a wonderful, wonderful summary right there, and uh, but it doesn't prevent evangelism. And so uh, I've got nothing to add <laughs> apart from that labels. It's wonderful. I do want to ask about gut health. Another inter- another sort of relatively hot topic, I would say, and I guess what can be done to keep your gut healthy? Is it important? What are sort of the common culprits? It talks to me a little bit about gut health. Yeah, this is an interesting one, and I, I, I'm going to preface it by saying that I'm not like a super expert in this area, but I've been, I've been following some of the research. Um, this. The, 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 there's two trends that I think have been going, uh, have attracted some research interest. One is this idea that if you do prolonged exercise, like running a race in hot conditions, this seems to raise the risk that your gut is going to malfunction in, in, a, in a way that's going to allow some, call them toxins to, to leak into your bloodstream. And it's possible even under it, it's hypothesized at least that if if you exercise really hard this could this could happen because what happens when you during hard exercise is your your muscles need as much oxygen as they can your leg muscles for example and your breathing muscles so blood rushes away from non-essential areas like your gut and goes and, and instead is headed towards your your leg muscles and your breathing muscles so your gut is not getting enough oxygen it's it's uh ischemic meaning it's 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 starved of oxygen and this may contribute to uh, the the gut lining not working the way it should and allowing toxins to the bloodstream which can cause generalized inflammation uh maybe it's gonna and and then it gets very hypothetical that maybe this is going to contribute to bad health or illness or whatever the case may be in the heat that's even exacerbated because you're also trying to shed heat uh from your skin so you're you're the blood vessels near near the surface of the body are dilating to bring as much hot blood to the surface as possible to shed heat. So there's even less blood going to your gut. And there's some reasonably good evidence that um, 
certainly if you look at the proxy mar markers of inflammation and uh, endotoxicity, uh, which is gut gut back or gut toxins leaking into your bloodstream, it's worse in hot conditions than it is in uh, ordinary, you know, normal cool conditions. So then the second stream of research is how do we fight this? And probably the most the idea that's got the most attention is probiotics. Mm -hmm. um, it's there are some studies that make it look like uh, this the that probiotics can help protect against this sort of uh, gut leakiness, gut dysfunction, but they're it's it's awfully mixed the results. It sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Maybe it depends on which types of probiotics you're taking. Maybe it depends on you and what your your current your current uh, microbiome is like maybe it depends on the exercise so there's there's really not a lot of clarity and i would give a shout out to a book by patrick wilson called the athlete's gut which came out last year um which i thought did a good job in that it does not offer any like here's the three things you need to do and then everything will be fine instead it gives you a roadmap to to follow your own symptoms and your own situation and say well here if this is what I'm feeling, here are the six things that might be contributing to it. And here are the six. So these are six things I can try, you know, changing what I eat. Is it that I'm eating too many FODMAPs, which are fermentable oligodisaccharides? Anyway, I won't even pretend I can remember what it is. Um, a certain type of food mm -hmm. uh, or a, yeah. a certain ingredient in types of foods that is, it's kind of the new gluten. So, um, that's yeah. I guess my for being pithy, read the athlete's gut. That's a pretty good starting place because it's not it's not clear how to fix this stuff, and it's also not clear what the ramifications really are. I think we shouldn't start getting paranoid about oh my god, you know, I'm getting inflammation after a hard run. Well, you know, lots of things happen after a stressful thing like a race. Most of them go back to normal within a day. Yeah, I, actually, I saw that book and uh, Patrick's book, and I, I haven't read it yet, so I, I will because it sounds interesting. And uh, and I, I think that what will flag gut health is is one to keep an eye on. It's obviously emerging. We we probably don't know quite enough yet. Uh, I certainly don't know that much about. It. Yeah, and it's, I mean, people think it's interesting because there's this the big boogeyman of the last five years has been this idea of systemic inflammation. Maybe training, maybe diet, things that lead to inflammation in general will exacerbate wherever you have an actual hotspot of inflammation. Maybe that's true, maybe it's not, but it's it's one reason why people are interested in this. It's not just like, oh, I don't like having the runs. It's also, is that, does this have wider implications? And the answer is we, we don't really know yet. I, I don't think it's like... I don't think there's going to be any, we suddenly discovered that, that, uh, you know, this is, you know, felling thousands of people or anything, but it's, it may be a contributor to health. And if so, that it'll be great to know if there are things we can do to, to mitigate gut problems. Cause you know, uh, runners and endurance athletes in general do experience gut problems. They do indeed. So, so the last question in this category, uh, a little bit of a, a broader one, a fun one for you. From all of sort of nutrition and hydration, if you'd like to include it in there, any flags to raise for listeners? And when I say flags, it could be something that's either really positive or really negative, things to keep an eye on or, or look out for, uh, anything interesting as we as we go through the, the coming year. You know, there's a word that pops to mind that um, there have been a few articles on, and I, I think I'm getting the word right, orthorexia. I can't even remember exactly what it means, but it's basically the, the the obsession with eating right. And I I think it's a common problem. Uh, you know, 
anyone who's a competitive athlete trying to optimize their performance or trying to optimize their performance in other areas of life, uh, there can be a, a temptation to to get obsessed with optimization and to be convinced that there's a right way of doing everything and that that means that there's a wrong way of doing everything and every other way is wrong. And so you start worrying about everything you you, you eat. And I, I say this because I know I, I can sometimes detect this this tendency in myself and it's like, oh no, you know, I, I, I shouldn't eat that because that's going to raise my blood sugar and I shouldn't eat that because that's going to, you know, make me gain weight and I shouldn't eat that. And it's like, all of a sudden it's like, well, my BMI is like 18. I need to eat something. And and so we've, one of the trends over the last like year, I would say is people are, uh, I've started to recognize that uh, relative energy deficiency in sport, which is a, a sort of a new branding of, of this idea of the athlete's triad of not eating enough. It applies to males as well as females. And it's not as obvious because males don't have a, a period to lose, but it, it, it can be dangerous and it can also be just unpleasant to be constantly focused on to, to see everything in your fridge and everything on your plate as a potential source of doom and destruction. So I think, you know, Matt Fitzgerald had a book a few years ago called Diet Cults, which, yeah, it was maybe a little bit over the top. He's basically saying every every diet that has a name is, is it, people are trying to turn it into a cult and, and feel that they're righteous. But I, I think, I, I guess a flag I would raise is if you're relatively healthy, then by all means, try and be healthier, but don't let it become an all-consuming quest where you're spending all your time and emotional energy pursuing diminishing returns where it's like, you know what, you know, just eat the piece of bread, even if it's only 60% whole wheat rather than hundred percent of whole wheat. Like don't, don't let it take over your life. There is, I've actually done some reading on this orthorexia and it, it is that uh, the obsession of almost perfection of eating and, and typically it's not related to weight loss and uh, it, and and, um, and it is it is categorized as much of a, in the same category as illness as as the other exias if you want to call it that anorexia and obviously there's bulimia etc etc it's a it's a a very serious challenge and uh, and and you sort of label it an, an illness in in many ways. And in fact, I would say, as a coach, just a dumb coach that I am, the most common, one of the most common challenges that I face, whether it is through that that sort of behaviour of, of of obsessive eating to get the quality exactly right, or whether it's just a the stress of what it takes to eat enough to support the training with people that are really carrying heavy training loads. It's most, I'll say this, most under eat relative to the demands. It's very, very common. And, uh, and of course that can set off a cascading effects with fluctuation, mood, energy, injury risk, and so much more. And, and it's actually one of the reasons for me and for listeners at home, you've heard me bark on about this so much that we really try and implement the first habit that I try and get athletes to do, the very first habit that there's, there's really two, but one of the two is to fuel post-workouts to, to really sort of set the, the stage of it. That, that's sort of a, and it has a cascading broader impact well beyond the sort of any physiological argument of should I and shouldn't I, and is it important or is it not? It's more of a habit component. The other one, by the way, Alex, just for, for your sort of, knowledge is uh, is going easy in the easy sessions if i can get those two things right <laughs> you're sort of nailing the basics that, that's 90 percent of the way there, a, eh? 
yeah, ninety percent of the way there. So yeah, but but yeah, just to pick up on that point, it's like th- those two things work together in that underfueling for for people who are actually training, uh, you know, at any re- you know semi serious level for endurance, underfueling is a, is a constant danger, and then so then. It, you don't have to add on full-fledged orthorexia, even if you just have a little that little bit of doubt that you're like, oh, maybe this isn't the right thing for me. So you're just saying no to a few more things than you would otherwise. That because you're already on the edge of undereating, it doesn't take much to start to push you uh, even farther, you know, down that slope where you're not getting enough. Even if you're not consumed with orthorexia if you're just a little bit obsessive about worrying about whether this is the you know the right this polyunsaturated this or whatever the case may be it's like well you were already on the precipice of not eating enough and now you've missed out a couple of fueling opportunities yeah it's uh it's really important I'm, i i didn't know what you were going to come up with for that question i'm really glad that you did go there and uh, and it's accumulative that's that's a challenge it's in the same way as that if you train consistently it almost is a, a low simmer of fitness that comes. If you underfuel or undereat consistently, it's an accumulative negative effect. So um, it's super. So that closes nutrition. Oh, folks, that conversation leaves you wanting more, doesn't it? Well, you can. Next week, we pick up the conversation. We dive into strength, recovery, and research with a little mindset to twist. And don't forget, become a Purple Patch athlete or member of our education-focused program labeled Performance Academy, and you can have all of your own questions answered by Alex in a live video call over the coming weeks. Details in the show notes or reach out at info at purplepatchfitness.com. Until then... I am really looking forward to next week. And as ever, stay safe and take care. Cheers. Thanks so much for listening. This has been the Purple Patch Podcast. If you like what you hear, we'd really appreciate it if you share with your friends and even go the extra mile and head over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe, rate and review the show. The Apple Podcast link is in the show notes. Your support and positive reviews go a huge way in increasing our visibility and also the exposure to time-starved people everywhere who want to integrate sport into life and ultimately thrive. Don't forget, you can also follow us on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter. Cheers!